Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I also serve as the executive director of your Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm here in the studio with Michael Ferris-Smith. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Malcolm. Good to be here. And Michael uh, has been in town for a while. He's had a book signing, a very successful book signing. Uh, the other day at Lemuria, you had a what looked like standing room sold out situation. It was. it was a very good feeling event. You know, I've always loved coming down here, and I love John Evans and everything he's done for me over the years. And uh, so to show up to Lemuria to a big crowd, that was perfect. Yeah, well, it's always a shout out to Lemuria and John Evans. So Michael Ferris Smith is author of The Fighter, Desperation Road, Rivers. In the Hands of Strangers, his novels have appeared on the Best of the Year list with Esquire, Southern Living, Book Riot, and numerous other outlets, and have been Indie Next, Barnes & Noble, Discover, and Amazon's Best of the Month selections. His essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Bitter Southerner, Garden and Gun, and many other volumes. Michael Ferry Smith lives in Oxford, Mississippi, with his wife and his daughters. Michael, uh, I have read a number of uh, bios uh, about you or about your bio in various places, and it always says that you're from Mississippi, but it never says what town, what villages, what crossroads, <laughs> what communities. It says that you are the son of a Baptist preacher and you were born in Mississippi. Where in the world did you actually grow up? I'm a rambling man. I don't know, I was a rambling young man and a rambling boy, too. <laughs> well, with my dad being a Southern Baptist preacher, we did bounce around a lot. I was born in Macomb, but at the time I was born, my parents were actually in New Orleans. My dad was at the seminary. Wow. Uh, my so, uncle uh, taught at the seminary. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. The, the the fellow who baptized me. Oh, is that right? Uh, he, he long served down there. I think he was the one of the deans or vice presidents, and but spent yeah. a lot of time. He was a steward. Oh, yeah. Don's, Dr. Don Stewart my dad was, probably was my knows cousin. It. It sounds like something he'd know. Um, but we bounced around. Some places you may have not even heard of, like McGee's Creek, which is outside of Tylertown. Oh, okay. Yazoo City. At one point, we moved to Georgia for a little while, for a couple of years. My dad's from Georgia, but then we were back um, in Magnolia, um, and then finally in Macomb, and I feel like I'm probably missing somewhere in now, there. Now, uh, you lived in Hattiesburg because you, you taught at USM, that's right? right? Well, I went to the Center for Writers at USM, but I, w I played baseball at Southwest in Macomb. Then I went to Mississippi State for a few years. Then I left the state for three or four years and went and lived abroad, and then I came back, and I— Lived in Hattiesburg, and then now we moved, then we were in Columbus, and yeah, now you live at W, right? Oxford, yeah. So it's like I've hit every patch. I've lived everywhere, pretty much, but the Delta, I think. Well, I did not know you were a JUCO man, and oh, particularly yeah. a baseball player. I was a football JUCO man. I Is played right? at Northeast Community College. Nice. So you know, a few years before you. <laughs> now that was fun. It was fun. You know, yeah. that was an interesting. Up uh, two years in the community college was was a whole lot of fun. Probably too much, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I could ask you to read a passage uh, from your book about the voices or the voice. 
Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful piece. I wonder if you could read that to get us started. Absolutely. He did not know when he had begun to hear the voice, only that it had started. It was not there, and then it was. And he stopped and stared at the stars and the bright round moon, and he listened to it. In those empty nights, he walked with his mouth shut, and when the wind blew, he opened his palms to feel the push of the air, and he sometimes stopped and knelt, as if his spirit had been moved, and there was no longer the world before him, but there was only the world beyond flesh and bone. And this is uh, a passage from Michael's uh, newest novel entitled Blackwood. And uh, Blackwood, uh, the word Blackwood only appears one time in this entire book, yeah. uh, this place that, that it's named after. If you wouldn't mind, describe for our listeners what the Blackwood is and, and how you came to name your, your book about this phenomenon. The, the seed for Blackwood was um, the kudzu. Um, I guess over the last few years of living in the North Mississippi Hill Country, I drive between Oxford and Water Valley because um, I have a little studio there that I work in in Water Valley. And on Highway 7, it's almost just like endless kudzu. And it's weird. You're, you're around something your whole life, and then all of a sudden you begin to see it or notice it in a different way. And then driving along those hills and noticing the hillsides and the creek banks and the trees and the old houses and old trucks that are buried down in there, I just began to, like, feel something about that landscape, particularly when I would go past it in the twilight. It felt very haunted and eerie, spiritual even, I would think, in some way, and very much, like, alive, too, as if it had its own, like, heartbeat. It, it was weird. So when it was easy for me to imagine a tremendous valley covered in this kudzu and this little town on the edge of it, and then all the rises and humps and, like, the canopies the vines would form um, to make this a world on its own. And so when I began to describe this valley, I think I described it when I first went under and began to describe what it looked like underneath. I described it as the black wood below, block, all blocked out from the sun. Everything's just shadowy and dark. And it was weird. As soon as I wrote that line and wrote that word, I knew that was the title to the novel. Yeah, that's great. That's great. But, yeah, only once, man. That's it. That's right. So so the novel uh, begins in 1956, but there's only a, a short introduction to 1956 or a scene in 1956, and then you jump straight ahead to 1976. Mm -hmm. Talk about that sort of style, how you, you begin in 1956 and then you just leap leapfrog into 76. Right. Well, in the weird way of tell, you have to figure out how to tell a story, that wasn't even the natural, the actual beginning. I mean, I had that story that appears at the beginning kind of sitting around for years, and it was a strong, something really strong and grabbing, but I, it wasn't part of anything I was doing at the time. The suicide scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't throw it away. I knew that one day I would use it for something. I got you. So I started with the, with the town and the valley and the itinerant family showing up and all those things. But I knew that I, I wanted some other element. I wanted some type of like generational story, some type of, you know how it is in small towns. You tell stories about, well, that's the haunted house over there. Don't right. go down or don't go down that alley. Or you know, well, When don't, I was don't. a kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had to stay away from that place. That's right. And you don't go in those woods, right. you know. Um, so I took that story and the strength of it and the power of it, and I said, this is where I'm going to start. And I'm, this will give this a generational kind of feel right off the bat. And I'm going to 
start with that, and then 20 years later, I'm going to see what that little boy is like all grown up and make him a part of what's going on. And one of the things that uh, about this book that I really enjoyed was the construction. And, and my question to you is, was this of, of your doing, or did you have an editor and a publisher who said it's going to be constructed in these small chapters, and it's going to move very quickly, uh, and, and it's going to be really short chapters, it's going to be chopped up like this, mm-hmm. and we're going to... I, I just found that intriguing, and I was just curious, is that a Michael Ferris Smith style, or is that your publisher style, your editor? It's it's a Michael Ferris Smith style. I think it's just kind of the way my... Uh, the way I write scenes and language and things have evolved, the, the short chapters. But to, to my editor's credit, he recognizes that, and he likes it too, and he sees the strength in those two to three or four-page chapters that can really pack a punch. And he encourages it, and he lets it go, and he doesn't try to change what I'm doing, which is a sign of a good editor. Because yeah. I, I think those have, do have an impact the way they're – because they impact me. I mean, I write them, but then I turn around and read them, yeah. and I know how they feel, <laughs> and they, they do impact me. And I think it does keep the pages turning in some way. I know when I'm reading, if I'm in the middle of a 28-page chapter or 18-page chapter, it's sometimes I don't get through them. Right. And I, I, don't wanna, I don't want people to do that when they pick up my work. You know, I want them to get to the end of that chapter and feel that that punch or that propulsion that's taking them through to the next one. And it's really hard not to go to the next one in reading your work. I mean, you, you finish one of those sh- short chapters and you think, I'll stop here. And it's like, uh-uh, what in the hell happens next? <laughs> well, good, it's working. <laughs> <laughs> I got to keep moving here. That's right. <laughs> to see what's happening. Now, when you move 20 years from the suicide scene uh, where the young man becomes an adult, um, the year is is 1976, and I was just curious. There was absolutely no mention of the American Bicentennial, and I thought, you know, here's 1976. <laughs> this would have been a great way to – they would have thought, well, he'll mention something in here about the – but you didn't. No, I didn't. It never crossed my mind. <laughs> I mean, honestly, once you read about that town, you wonder if they even know, you know. <laughs> there were no flags draped <laughs> that, on Main Street. Right. There's not much celebrating going on in this town. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Um, so at the end of the book, and we'll go there at the end of the interview, uh, I'm curious about your view of death and afterlife and salvation. I, I know you grew up uh, with a father as a Baptist preacher. I, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. My uncle, my uh, cousin mm-hmm. was a Baptist preacher. I grew up Southern Baptist in a small Mississippi town, not yeah. too differently than you. Is is this view, uh, the sal- view of salvation and afterlife, a part of your view, or is this just a part of the story that you wrote here? Hmm. That is a fascinating question, and I don't, I've never really considered it. I think, um, I think it has to be part of my view, and I think the end of this book and the suggestions on. Or the notions toward you know death and salvation and these things throughout um, are probably my way of trying to consider it myself, outwardly I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the involvement of how I think about these things and consider these things. I don't know that. I don't really adhere to any theology about it necessarily. It's more. I don't know. I, 
when I talk about the spirit and the spiritual, I don't necessarily think of that in terms of Baptist or Methodist or whatever. Right. Um, I think of it in terms of uh, peace and understanding and hope um, and whatever those things lead to in the end. I mean, we don't really know. I'd like to think it leads toward the golden clouds and the, you know, singing angels and the singing and angels <laughs> and the never ending day. Um, so, I mean, I think this book, and I will say the fighter felt this way too, to me. I felt like in the fighter, I was working out some things and I feel like I kept trying to work them out in Blackwood. And I think probably your that question, um, you know, shines a light on this thing. I think even for me, just sitting here thinking about it now, and I know the end there, um, that was just, I never knew that ending was coming until I got there. I'm right? not surprised. I, I, just, I, I can just see came it out. just taking yeah. its own course. And when it came, like, I knew that was it. Uh -huh. And I felt it with a tremendous amount of heart, and I just, that was it. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. On this Sunday afternoon, we welcome all our listeners in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Arkansas who tune in to Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. We're here with Kevin Farrell, our producer and spiritual advisor, and my special guest today is Michael Ferris-Smith, who is a Mississippi writer and uh, has a brand new, fresh novel out called Blackwood, and it is set in the red clay hills of North Mississippi in and amongst the kudzu, and it is a tortured tale, uh, a dark but well-crafted parable of fear, death, Love, evil, and in my opinion, the devolving of characters and place. Very well said. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, devolving piece uh, kept it kept picking at me because, like, these guys were not only not going anywhere, they were going backwards. That's the, right. These human characters, not all of them, but a lot of your characters seem to be going backwards instead mm -hmm. of forward. They were becoming more and more like animals than humans. They were grunting instead of talking. They were crawling along the ground. They were on their knees. They were underneath stuff. It, it, it was amazing how devolving this whole thing was. It was great. <laughs> well, yeah, it was great. Um, I'm glad you saw it that way. Um, it's like that passage I read like there about the voice, which I think is very, I think it's like page 20. But I knew as soon as that man is wandering through the night, 
and he finds that valley for the first time. He sneaks up under the kudzu, and he believes he starts to hear something, that it was going to be a devolvement, and it was going to be a spiral. And about halfway through this thing, I just decided to just let it go. Like, you know, get out of the way, let it go, let it tell itself, and, just, you know, let's just see what happens. Um, but I think even, like, it's easy to point at the man and say that, but I think Colburn's facing those same issues also. Yeah. It seems like the whole place is, like Dixon and yeah. the sheriff. Is, and the sheriff. I mean, everybody is just almost like it's very stagnant around there. And then all of a sudden when things start to happen, because it has been so stagnant, they don't know what to do or how to react. Dixon's wife, I thought, was an interesting character. I liked her a lot. I really did. I found her to be one of my favorite characters. I can't remember her name. I can't either. I think you just called her Dixon's wife. (laughs) Is it Hattie, maybe? Maybe. It's Hattie. It's Hattie. Yeah. Yeah, I like Dixon and Hattie quite a bit. I liked her a lot. She was a... I really, she's not in there much, but I really love writing her pieces. Yeah, she she was she was good. Um, one of the things, well, first of all, on the man and and finding uh, the 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 valley that's covered up, and as you say, you knew it was going to be bad because he was hearing the voice, and it was dark, and it was dingy, but yet the man actually thought he was going to find some kind of gold or some kind of. He thought, man, this is great. This is my jackpot. I'm, this is right. the casino. I've just hit the lottery. <laughs> That's right. I mean, and when he first yeah. started going in there, he thought, man, there's going to be a treasure in yeah. here. He did. He thought, I mean, it was really interesting for me to have a character like that and discover this underworld, discover this Blackwood, and really begin to believe it was put there just for him or that it's his. And when he finds this cave in this tunnel, like, he takes ownership of it and possession of it and, like, I think that has a lot to do with his being driven matter and matter with it, you know, just that this is mine and this mm. is for me and I'm speaking the special language with this uh, with this landscape and with this tunnel and with this moan that's coming from very deep from places up that's so dark you can't even see where it is. Um, you know, a guy like him who hasn't, he, you know, I think his line to the sheriff later is, people like you've been stomping your feet on me my whole life and um or something to that effect and so when he sees this as an opportunity um he really you know gets wrapped up in it to use my 472nd kudzu vine pun in the last three days (laughs) (laughs) you know how fast kudzu grows how much a day it grows i don't know i was just curious if you had researched it at all no i didn't that grows fast does it i bet it grows a foot a a week it's got to man (laughs) it's got to we're all going to be waiting in it before much longer you got that right if we don't figure out what to do with it (laughs) well i don't know if there's anything to do with it i don't either um, this group of characters, uh, the man, the woman, the boy, and the child, uh, they remain unnamed. Did you deliberately give everyone else a name? All the other characters have a name and identity, but yet these drifters, mm-hmm. they have no names. They're right. just man, woman, boy, child. Yeah. Yeah, it was deliberate, but it wasn't like right out of the gate deliberate. Like mm-hmm. I just began to write their story and I didn't have a name for them right off the bat. So I just, you know, the day I sat down and started with them, I just called them the man, the woman, and the boy. And um, But as their story began to unfold, and as I began to spend more time with them, I realized that that's just who they were. Mm-hmm. Like, they've had a hard life. They live a re- very hard-worn existence. And they're both, 
they both have no identity and a very specific identity at the same time. And I think the way the people in the town see them and treat them, I thought them being nameless just seemed to fit as we went on through. And like going back to an editor again, like my editor was the same way. I fully expected, not fully, but I kind of expected him to say, you know what, we probably should go ahead and name them. But his first comment about it was, I think it's perfect that they're just the man, the woman, and the boy. It like fits the story and like their their life. Yeah, they remain unnamed. Mm-hmm. So speaking of your editor, what is your editor's name? I looked in this book trying to find it, and I couldn't. It's Joshua Kendall. Joshua um, Kendall. Okay. He's a, a executive editor at Little Brown, and he also directs the Mulholland imprint, which is their crime imprint. But, oh, okay. Yeah. So he's got a pretty big portfolio. Yeah, he's a good dude to work with. <clears throat> so there's a there's a concept in this book that uh, really intrigued me because I'm the director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I've spent a fair amount of my life promoting this thing called the creative economy and creative industries. And uh, you use uh, this concept in this book of, of communities taking abandoned buildings in their old downtown and making them available to artists uh, for no rent. If artists will come and set up shop and do business and live in these towns, Paducah, Kentucky uh, is a model that's pretty well known. Mm -hmm. They're doing it in Detroit. They do it in a lot of places. I was just curious, where did you find, how, how did you come up with putting that in here in 1976? Yeah, well, I read about this. Like you, I read about this years ago, about some small town doing it, and I thought, what a great idea. Well, I mean, what a truly great idea. You, you think about some small town of 5,000 people in their main streets, kaput, because everybody's driving 30 minutes to go to Walmart. What a great idea to get people living and working and being in the place again. Um, and so this town seemed like a perfect example of a place that would need some type of boost. Um, but it seems like to me the way they do it, they almost like do it as an afterthought and not really expecting anybody to show, show up. Because when Colbert like shows up, him yeah, they're like, <laughs> he was like, well, do I need to sign anything? And they're like, we don't know. You're the first one. <laughs> There's no they just, process. They just walking down the street and giving the key and like right. turn it. You know, There's no grant application. Just here's the key. That's right. Go yeah. in there and start making I stuff. Know. Let us, you know, let us know if you need anything. <laughs> and and what about this bar? There, a lot of this book is set in this sort of cinder block, sort of uh, seedy bar, a million of which I have graced in my lifetime. Yeah, you know much about those kind of places. I know with a little pool bit. Table and was there a jukebox? I don't really remember. There was a jukebox. There was a jukebox. Yeah, because he knocked uh, Dixon into the jukebox. That's right. Am I right about That's that? That's right. He cuts his, uh, cuts his eye head on, on the head on it when he hits it. Yeah, there's a jukebox and a pool table, and. Uh, Miller Light and Bud Light, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, no mixed drinks. There's there's probably a bottle of whiskey under the counter somewhere. But, you know, every every town, well, not every town, a lot of towns have one of these. And um, it's like the the social, cultural center, you know. And I've sat in these and been in these and shot pool in these. And, you know, and back in 1976, they're full of smoke, too, you know. It's like you walk in and the smoke kind of... Wheels out, out of the door. the door. That's right. Um, Says, come on in. That's right. Cut your way in. I know. Kind of like going into the Blackwood with the machete. That's right. Come on in the bar. You cut your way through the right. smoke. You just about have to. It's so thick. But you know, in storytelling, 
I needed a place where all these people could get together. Right. Yeah. And where they could. And I couldn't think of anything better than a cinder block bar, you know, because I like cinder block bars with pool tables and jukeboxes. Yeah. So I enjoyed going in there with them. And I particularly enjoyed having Celia as the bar owner and the bartender, this treasure to this town. When I mean, she's this person in this town that you look at and you go, what are you doing here? You right. Know? But she's remarkably comfortable there. Yeah, and she converts an old bait shop into a bar, yeah. and it becomes, yeah. the, as you say, the culture center. You know, it could have been the cafe, but it wasn't. It was the bar where the culture yeah. center was. There was a cafe right down the way there. That's right. Uh, you know, I figured the cafe closed after lunch. I got you. So, well, we need some nighttime. <laughs> and people don't get in fights in cafes. Not, not during breakfast. <laughs> That's right. But you can get in a fight in a bar anytime. <laughs> Are you old enough to remember Purvis's Pool Hall in Oxford? Yes, I am. That one place was kind of like this way back in the yeah. 70s. When I went to school up at up yeah, there, it is. These it? little spots are all over. Are used to be all over. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I can remember one in Macomb in particular. Um, it's not there anymore, but you know, all those things. All, everyone I've sat in is part of this one. Sure, as it should be. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you first, um, or when I first read about the, the book, and someone was explaining it in a review, and they they mentioned uh, the drifters. <clears throat> And it said these these characters come to town. My first thought was immigrants, that it was going to be a family of immigrants. But boy, was I wrong. Yeah. It was a family of of uh, just drifters, mm -hmm. just going as far as a tank of gas would take them and stop there and see yeah. what they can come up with. Yeah. I mean, this goes back a little bit to uh, my Southern Baptist upbringing because I can remember being a kid. And uh, I believe this had to be when we were in Magnolia because I was, you know, a teenager and old enough to remember stuff like this. And people would come through that little town and they would go to the church and they would come find my dad and knock on his door, or ask for the preacher. And they would ask for $10 for gas or can we have, you know, do you have any diapers or do you have any clothes or any food or can you give us right. $20 for groceries just so they could get on down the line to wherever it is they're going. And I remember, like, even, like, my dad talking about it. It's like, you help them, but you don't know if you're really helping them or not. Like, you don't know where they're going. And, you, I mean, it's, it's a very helpless feeling. And I think that we see that in Meyer, too. When mm -hmm. he comes, he's the first to see them and approach yeah. them. And I think uh, his thought is they're way down deep in a hole and you can't get them out. Is his first thought about them, and I, I remember experiencing that, and through my father, and people kind of drifting through town and asking for gas money to drift to the next town. And Meyer has great remorse about not getting the car fixed, so they wouldn't stay. I mean, as the book goes on, he's more and more. Yeah. He regrets the fact that he <clears throat> didn't uh, get the car fixed and get them on out of town and move them to the next place right. because all sorts of. Darkness un comes, That's right. comes unglued. Yeah, if he would have just helped stay. them, you know, it would have been a very different book. Well, he tried, but they, he they hid the car, as, as I That's recall. right. One quick question before we go on break about process. Describe your writing habits, your writing day, and mm -hmm. how do you approach this? It has to be habitual. Um, and about, I guess, seven or eight years ago, when I learned that I, better, I need to show up every morning as long as I can, that's when things really begin to change for me. But my routine has been 
for years now is I take my we get up in the morning I take my girls to school drop them off and then um when we were in Columbus I had a writing space downtown there I have one in Water Valley now but I go right to my workspace like right off the bat I'm sitting there go to work. at 8:15 no Wi-Fi no phone close the door go to work because if I wait around till the day gets going you get distracted and you procrastinate if i if i go pay a bill or if i go run an errand it's it's shot you might bump into somebody that's right you might bump there into goes your somebody. whole day <laughs> so i get in that room and i know it's it's business time and i know it's my time and i'm very i'm very um greedy with it um and i go to work so that way when i walk out of there i can feel good i've done my work and it kind of like sits in you the rest of the day and then as hemingway used to say you he would write in the mornings, and then he'd say, let my subconscious have it the rest of the day. Right. And I, I really like that, um, that idea. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. In the studio with Michael Ferris-Smith. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you very much. Why do you use all three names? Well, when you have a name like Michael Smith, you do anything to jazz it up. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I didn't want to get lost in the shuffle like I have always been with that name. But well, I like I, it, though. Yeah, well, it used to be my get-in-trouble name, but now I like it. You know, that's the only time my uh, my father ever used my all three names is when I was in trouble. James Malcolm White, boy, yeah. I knew that was that. Yeah, you know, to turn the other way. And I had one uncle uh, who lived in Ponchatoula, Louisiana. He fondly called me James Malcolm. Mm -hmm. But other than those two incidences, I've always just been Malcolm or Mal, yeah. really. Yeah. You're not related uh, to Bill Ferris, are you? No. You're a Mississippi guy. I didn't see any Vicksburg in your. No, my dad's actually from Georgia. Okay. So we're Georgia Smiths, I suppose. And um, it's it, you know it's funny though that name like goes way back on my dad's side. I think like it's like been past six or seven generations. Like and you look, I look look back on the family tree one time. I had like a great great grandfather or something who was like a Julius Caesar Ferris Smith, and there was like wow. a George Washington Ferris Smith. It was really strange. But that name oh, is with the Ferris Smith with the Ferris. Oh, okay. Yeah, just like I don't know how it, but it's been passed on and on and on, and here I am with it. And you're living in Oxford. Been there how long? Three years. Now. Three years. Yeah. And and your wife and daughters. Correct. Two of them. Like living there. They do. It's been a you know we had a good good run in Columbus. A lot of good friends there. It's a good little town. But Oxford has been a good move for us too. It, we really enjoyed it. You've lived in three of the university towns: uh, Hattiesburg, Oxford, and uh, and and Columbus. And Starkville. And, and Starkville. Yeah. That's right. You've yeah. lived in most I've of. I've done them. it all, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I went to State and Ole Miss, too, so, uh, and, yeah. and USM. Well, there you go. So, <laughs> there you go. I've been around. 
so right before the break, we were talking about your your uh, your writing regiment, your uh, process, and you, you you explained it pretty well. I was going to ask you if, if you try to write a, a certain amount of uh, hours a day. Like, do you consider your work day from eight no. to? No, it's really about words a day. Oh, like, words a day. I'm okay. shooting for a thousand words a day, and sometimes the lightning strikes and you look up. And it's been 48 minutes, and you look down at your word count, and you hit it because something just—it's just been one of those days where something else is taking control. And then some days you sit there for three hours, and you look down, and you're on like 222 words. So you just never know. But the goal is a thousand, you know, mm-hmm. which you know that used to feel like a lot to me, but now it just feels like—and that's just from years of doing it sure. and experience, and you know, evolving as a writer. Um, so if I can knock out a thousand a day or get close to it, you know, you can have a draft of a novel in four months, four or five months, you know, or at least something hearty enough that you can really begin to work with then. And how many uh, drafts, how many outlines, how many projects are like alive in your workspace right now at a time? It used to be just one. Mm-hmm. It used to be the novel I was working on and nothing else. But as things have evolved, thankfully, um, with some movie stuff and film stuff recently, like um, I had to pause several times with Blackwood to write the script for The Fighter. Uh, I had to pause again to write the script for Desperation Road. And then with all that comes, um, they read the script and you're sitting there, you're kind of getting soaked back into Blackwood and whatever you're working on. And they're like, what? Here's some changes or some things we want to talk and about. Them and we need them tomorrow. It's like, <laughs> man, I waited on you for six months for this contract, and now you're telling me you need this tomorrow? Um, so it's lately it's been a couple of three things at a time. Um, but, you know, I really will cut out the time when I know I can, like I can get a script done in like two or three months, and I would just write, work on that script and nothing else. So the novel has to wait, Right. Um, I thought that would be more problematic than it is, but I, I, the script writing thing feeds kind of another part of you creative, creatively. So you're um, you're learning to storytell, but through a different medium, and you're using different skills to do it. So I, I don't think it takes away from the novel writing. I mean, I, the best piece of novel writing or fiction writing advice I ever got was, and I can't remember who gave it to me, um, was that when you're writing a scene, you need to imagine that you're in a theater at the movie, and there's someone sitting next to you, and they're blindfolded. Now, you describe to them what you see on the screen. Hmm. Because you wouldn't just say, well, there's a farm. You would say, there's a weathered old red barn. There's a three-legged dog milling around outside. The fence is about to fall in, and the sun is setting in the background. There's a flock of birds flying across the horizon. And then you would have to—the screen changes. You have to do it economically because the screen changes, and then you got to hit the next image and go. You know, and you've got to nail it. That was great advice. Mm. So I think that thinking about things cinematically in my prose really helped when I began to actually write things for the screen. I'm thinking of Fogner and how much he hated going out to Hollywood and making the money, but he liked the money and he needed the money, so mm-hmm. he would do it. But he seemed to, at least if you read, he says he never really liked it. Do you like it? I do like it. I think I'll probably have a very, I've had a different experience with it because I didn't have to like, go out there and just start taking projects or have projects pushed upon me or chase things like this has been a very good experience of producers buying my books and then coming to me with their directors and saying we want you to write it but we want what's in the novel 
What we love is the novel, that story, and that's the story we want to tell on the screen. And they did not put a thumb on me or they really turned me loose to write the script. And they're like, we're not going to tell you what to do or how to do it. You go adapt it. When you have the draft, you bring it to us and let's see. And that was very liberating to be given that type of uh, to rope of that type of rope, so to speak. Um, it gave me confidence too that they thought that I would be able to do it and do it well. And um, so far, it's worked out. It's worked out pretty well. But you'd never done it until you got a deal. I had done a couple of practice ones. Okay. You know, um, I have a manager out out there in L.A. and I started working with him uh, probably four or five years ago and. You know, he approached me, I guess probably like Faulkner was approached, why don't you come try this? And I was like, yeah, let's let's try it and see. And so he and I worked on a, a thing or two just to see if I could do it, you know. And I was pretty aggravated because I don't like doing things for practice anymore. <laughs> um, but then when all this popped up, I was like, well, thank God I did that because now I know I know how to do it. And I look at those couple scripts I did with him just to see if we could do it. And then I look at like now um, the fighter script. And I'm like, man, I've gotten a lot better at this. And you're also, I guess, rewriting your own story. You're you're writing from from your own novel. So right. it's like, okay, I wrote the novel, now I'm writing screenplay. Yeah, Play. that ought to be. That's the other part is I know the is that story. Easy. It's uh, I can make it easier, but I don't know. Sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it's harder because um, the thing is, there's a lot, and you know from reading uh, the novels, there's a lot going on internally. And you got to get figure out how to get that stuff out onto the into dialogue or however it's going to work. And the other thing is, you would think it's as simple as copying and pasting dialogue from the book into the script, but it's really not because scenes. I mean, it's just it's just different, mm -hmm. you know. And but the cool thing is, like, you get to revisit these characters, and they get to say new things, and they get to react. You know, where they may exchange two or three lines of dialogue in the novel, it might become a two or three page scene in the script, you know, which is it's been kind of fun, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it is. All right. So if you wouldn't mind, I'm, I'm going to ask you to read uh, sort of the closing uh, portion of, of the book of Blackwood. And it, it I love it. And I, I thought it was so well crafted. And uh, I just. I enjoyed it so much, I thought, you know, I'm going to get Michael to read it out loud. Yeah, so good. if you would, that would be great. All right. In his worst moments of pain, he would scream at the world that he believed had failed him so badly. And that was when an old woman appeared in the house with her frazzled gray hair and crusted blood in her nose and a cackle that fell somewhere between laughing and crying. The children, he imagined, would then disappear as if frightened by the demented old woman who came to visit the sick man. But one child returned again in moments of appeasement and exhaustion when she left him alone. The child would sit on the edge of the bed and talk to Colburn in a serenity of brotherhood he had never known. And the child would make promises, suggestions of being together in a future unbound, Colburn had read through stiff motel room Bibles, and sometimes he found comfort in the passages, and other times he realized how far short he had fallen, and he felt the hellfire that had been set forth for him by his mother and father from the moment of conception. A damned child born into a damned world where there was nothing to do but accept the rejection waiting for him. In those last days he feared the uncertainty of what lay ahead, but he believed it was going to hurt, because he had raged against the life given to him and had never tried anything different. He had cursed bitterly against his mother and father, 
against the force that robbed him of Celia, against the valley that wanted more and took it, against his own guilt for the anger that sent her down the pathway. Inside him a bitterness had grown and spread through his body and warmed his blood and now blended with the sickness that coursed through his veins. In his final bedridden and delirious days he cried out, cried out for the child to come and stay with him, and when the child returned, the child begged him to say it. All you have to do is say it, but he would not. He wanted the world to beg him for forgiveness and not the other way around. Say it, the child would tell him. Say it, and we can go away together. You can be my brother. No. In the last hours of his life, they argued and argued some more, and then he felt himself relinquish, enlighten, as if a multitude of tender hands touched his body and lifted him. He felt himself above, outside and down the river and then across the valley of Kudzu, looking down into the force of nature. Say it, the child whispered. It's not your fault. The hands held him and carried him to the space between light and dark, and then he said it. I'm sorry. He felt his spirit lift, and he felt the weight of sickness and solitude disappear, and he said it again and again. I'm sorry. And the multitude of hands held him between the light and the dark, and then they let him go, waiting to see if his spirit would rise or if it would fall. And that's the way the story goes. Do you have, um, do you have a, a movie deal on on this book already? Yeah, the guys who are directing the fighter have bought Blackwood, and I'll be working on that script this summer. So you, so three of your novels will will be three adapted. will be, and we are actually negotiating Rivers for a television deal right now. Wow, which I'm hoping. That option goes through. I think Rivers would make a hell of a television series. You got a lot going on, young man. I know, man. I it's uh I think about it a lot. It's um you think about all those years you worked and nothing happened, but you keep working, which is what I always tell everybody. And you talk creative writing for a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's the? How do you feel about the difference between what you taught? And what you now do for a living, your your vocation, is it similar? It's to what very you similar. I mean, mm-hmm. I I teach effort. To be honest, we talk about things like dialogue and setting, and and there are things you can do to get better at that. But I really talk about effort and sitting down and being curious and asking questions and trying as best as you can, because there's no substitute for that. Michael Ferris Smith's new book is entitled Blackwood. It's about kudzu that grows one foot a day. day. (laughs) (laughs) And a bunch of characters who encounter it. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, I appreciate it. And good luck on this book and the films and and all the other projects you have brewing in your studio there in Oxford. And that uh, we appreciate what you do and for sharing it with us today. Absolutely, Malcolm. Thanks. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.